0: humans have evolved in two very distinct ways one is through you know genetic evolution which is glacially slow and the other is through culture which is fast and getting faster and the two are now fundamentally in mismatch so the brain that you and i are walking around with is essentially identical to the brain that our 80,000 year old ancestors were walking around with they are threat detection, pattern recognition machines that are designed to keep us alive and not at all well designed for the world that we have created for ourselves.
1: Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers and next-level gurus. This is the active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host CEO and founder of energy to perform international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns.
2: On this episode of the active CEO podcast, we speak with a culture change expert who has 30 years experience with blue chip corporates around the world. She loves bringing people on the change journey is a master of managing group dynamics and generally cares about the work that she does, the people she interacts with and the impact it makes on the organization. Her education included a BA English Literature at Monash University. An executive MBA from the London Business School, is certified as an executive coach from the Institute of Executive Coaching and Leadership and is a certified company director from the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Our guest's career has included roles in marketing, communications, consulting and human resources at companies such as Ogilvy, Caboodle, Growth Solutions Group, Wright Management and National Australia Bank. She founded Robertson Consulting Services in 2017 to help leaders and business owners create the culture they need to execute strategy. I'm honored and privileged to introduce you to a passionate, caring, deeply committed and relentless leader of change, Fiona Robertson. Fiona, welcome to the show.
0: Goodness, thank you, Craig. What a lovely introduction.
2: (laughs) One of the only constants in the world is change. What was your childhood like? And did you dream of changing anything big in the world when you were young?
0: Well, I had a very traditional suburban uh, upbringing, so uh, lived in Doncaster. Anyone who knows Melbourne will know that Doncaster is this kind of, you know, mid-range eastern suburb. It was all very leafy. I was privileged to be sent to um, one of those sort of private schools that I now look at and think, oh, I'm not entirely sure that's a good idea, but um, my parents were very passionate about education and uh, so I had a lovely upbringing in many respects. It was a little turbulent Um, kind of midway through because my parents divorced in you know somewhat um, difficult circumstances and so my earliest experiences of of change was really of that experience I guess and you know leaving the what had been up until that point the family home and you know stayed with my grandmother for a while with my mum and my brother and sister and then we settled um, in Doncaster and that was actually really lovely because that was a a beautiful place to be. And it felt very safe and secure. So in many respects, I had this idyllic childhood, but yeah, that one kind of formative experience of change.
2: And did that kind of affect you at school or were you just able to continue as the same, same child at school doing, you know, doing her work at school and being involved with the social aspects with your friends?
0: Yeah, I, I was able to continue on at school. Um, school was kind of the constant through that, uh, that couple of years of turbulence. Um, but it's interesting. I, I think about school in a funny kind of way because whilst I love the learning aspect of it, I always felt a little bit um, separate somehow. Uh, so I used to kind of observe it. Um, And think how interesting it was how you know classes were held and the teachers behaved in particular ways and gosh Look at the way that group of students is um, Behaving and it was really quite quite strange I felt like I was sort of watching some kind of experiment rather than participating in it Um, And I think from just a really early age I've just been so fascinated by you know the human animal and why we do what we do that I've always felt like a bit of an anthropologist even as a child
2: So so obviously from that observant sort of point of view, but were you also finding yourself in leadership positions during those school years?
0: Um, Only in a very small way. So I, I, I kind of didn't, want to participate too much in the official side of school, I kind of prided myself on being a bit low rule following and a bit of a, you know, not a real maverick. I wasn't the kid who got the tattoos or, you know, pierced their tongue when they were 12 or any of that stuff. But I just kind of held myself a little bit apart. Um, so I didn't, you know, try and be the the captain of this or that um, or anything. But I did find myself um, a kind of informal leader of of change. So um, I remember a time when uh, I was part of a a sort of performance group and myself and some other girls went away and came up with a completely new ending for something and just sort of sprung it on (laughs) the rest of them. Um, And in the end, they decided to keep it. But it was all a bit, you know, under the surface and not through official channels, which I really quite enjoyed, I must say.
2: (laughs) So what was the catalyst behind doing a BA of English Literature at Monash University?
0: Well, I would love to tell you that that was carefully planned and, you know, it so wasn't. Um, I basically was one of those kids. I was quite a good uh, – I was great with words always, writing, and, um, you know, people who know me well enough will tell you that I can speak under wet concrete, basically. But I was good at um, so the the kind of um, – Uh, humanities type subjects and and less interested in sciences so when it came time to decide what to do at university I didn't honestly have a clue Um, and I thought well look an arts degree seems like you know the kind of thing you do while you're figuring out what you really want to be when you grow up so I took myself off to Monash and started doing um, courses in English literature and so I majored in 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 English but um, kept trying to find minors that I was interested in and so I dabbled in sociology even took economics which people who know my history with numbers would just chortle at the mere thought of Um, but yes I really just did it because I didn't know what else to do Um, but along the way it just completely ignited my love of language and my fascination with you know the human condition and with communication of all kinds.
2: So talking about communication, what was your first job, whether Mm -hmm. it be at high school or whether it be after university or during university? And how did you find yourself in that role?
0: Well, I did um, little bits and pieces of retail and waitressing and so on, but my first kind of real job, um, I was so thrilled with, I must confess, because uh, it was in the publicity department of the Melbourne Theatre Company. Uh, And this came about because I was doing a bit of performing at uh, university and um, just inadvertently um, kind of fell into this role. And it was just heaven on a stick because I was involved in theatre, which I loved, not not as a performer, but um, behind the scenes. And it was an opportunity to use um, and hone some communication skills. So I got to learn how the media worked. And, um, yeah, it was a fascinating, uh, fun time early in my career.
2: Brilliant. So moving on from there, you went to the UK during the 1990s and worked at Ogilvy which must have provided some great learning experiences. What did you enjoy most about working for Ogilvy and halfway across the world?
0: Yeah, I absolutely loved that time. Um, eight years in London was a, was a, an, enough to feel like it was home uh, during that period. And working for Ogilvy was also fascinating. So um, Ogilvy is part of the WPP or was at the time part of the WPP group, which is one of the largest um, communications kind of conglomerates. Uh, and Uh, Working in the public relations uh, consulting firm, um, I started off doing um, interesting consumer marketing campaigns with things like Bulgari jewellery and Ray-Ban sunglasses and quickly moved into um, sort of issues management and corporate communications. One of my largest clients in uh, that period was IBM, their Europe, Middle East and Africa um, region. Uh, so, so-called Emir region and their head office was in Paris so I spent a lot of my time traveling through the the channel as it's known uh, the channel tunnel between Paris and London which sounds terribly glamorous but um, anyone who knows Paris uh, uh, the office of IBM was in a place called La Défense, which is um, not a glamorous part of Paris at all. Uh, so it was nowhere near as glamorous as it sounds. But what was fascinating about it was that I was um, responsible for coordinating a 35 country um, region. And what that exposed me to was the extraordinary similarities between humans, but also the fundamental differences between the different cultures, you know, large sea cultures. Um, of, of the different nationalities and so I learned a lot about um, the fact that that we all look at the world through our own unique lens um, and also that innate tension between attempting to coordinate something from the center and the view that you get from the center of some kind of network versus the view that you get when you're in the field of some kind of network. And the tensions between those two were completely fascinating and I think really helped ignite my passion uh, around culture, you know, large C and small C.
2: So working across borders there, what was the best piece of advice you were given from someone you worked with during that time?
0: what a fantastic question um it really had to do with with the point i just made that everyone looks through their own lens at the world and so i think if i could really crystallize the advice it was meet people where they are so really attempt to see the world through their eyes listen intently to what is said and and not said and try to imagine yourself uh, dealing with the pressures that, that whoever it is you're speaking with is dealing with on a day-to-day basis because everybody has them.
2: Oh, I like that piece of advice. Very, very good. Talking about working with you know people, you, you did a lot of work around marketing intelligence, uh, which has been quite a key component of some of your career. What are the key marketing metrics you see as really important for businesses as we head into the 2020s?
0: Yeah, Um, it's meet them where they are, I guess, a version of that, Uh, because um, what the customer thinks is is genuinely everything. Um, The pace of change now is accelerating, you know, so quickly. Uh, our ability to predict the future is becoming less and less. uh, We we have a less and less opportunity to do that with any form of accuracy. So we just have to listen intently to our customers, figure out what job they're trying to do. Um, I remember once uh, somebody told me, you know, when you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. So if you're if you're selling um, hammers, uh, you think all people want to use them for is to hammer in a nail. But if you want to hammer in a nail, you could do that with a number of different things. And so you may not be competing with other hammers, you may be competing with, I don't know, I'm making this up now, but maybe a piece of brick, who knows? The point is understand what the customer is trying to achieve and help them achieve it, whatever that might be.
2: Mm. So we're going, to, we're going to move into the culture aspect aspects now. And culture is a word mentioned so often now in discussions relating to organisational or CEO performance. What characteristics do you feel you have which have allowed you to be an effective leader of cultural change?
0: So I think some of those early experiences in my career did help because being able to see the kind of macro side of culture through the different nationalities allowed me then to observe more keenly the micro differences in culture. If you're inside an organization, if you're looking at the the marketing guys versus the sales guys versus the finance guys or the technology guys or whoever, they're all their own little tribe and some of them have very distinct characteristics and being able to observe that um, I think gave me a kind of, um, yeah, it was just a, I don't know, superpower or something. I I, was just an obsession with how humans interact that, that became more and more finely honed over, over my years of experience.
2: So as head of culture at national Australia bank, what were the biggest challenges you faced following the kind of the global economic crisis as you moved in there after the late two thousands?
0: Yeah, I mean, a large system like that, 35,000 employees, is a, a pretty unwieldy beast, and it's full of many, many tribes um, of every conceivable kind. And at that time, it was an organization like many large banks, um, who kind of in shock at what had just transpired around the world. Uh, very few people, as we know, uh, were, were in a position to predict what happened. Some did, but, but uh, very few. And so um, there was this, uh, you know, kind of huge moment of introspection where this group of, you know, for the most part, extremely smart, uh, hardworking, well-intentioned, decent human beings um, were trying their damnedest to do what was right for the customer and yet the size of the system that they were within and some of the dynamics within it just made that such a very difficult thing to do. Um, One of the things I am most proud of is introducing a set of values into the organisation and embedding those into the performance management system uh, which I think is incredibly important as a symbol of what matters uh, how how things are measured inside an organization um, and also uh, working towards the development of a purpose for the organization which we uh, launched just before I left so working in a in a An organisation of such scale and complexity was completely fascinating, and I loved every single minute of it. It it wasn't without its challenges, of course. Um, It's very difficult to try and shift a system of that size, uh, particularly with any speed. Um, But boy, I had fun trying.
2: (laughs) And I bet you did. Now, just talking about the, you know, the change or, or seeing an economic crisis come into play, and we've seen. They tend to happen every 10 to 15 years and and sometimes it's a bit shorter or a bit longer, but we seem to be making the same mistakes again and heading into another crisis. So you talk about cultural change within an organization taking a long time to shift, but it seems like the culture in the industry and, and in that financial sector seems to just keep flowing in waves of ups and downs based on the same problems and same ideas being replicated time and time again. Is that what you're seeing as well? And is that got to do, how do how do the bank's culture, how does that get affected by what's happening in the industry?
0: Yeah, there's a real tension um, when you're a large bank, or indeed any other large organisation that's in a highly regulated industry, because on the one hand um, you are regulated to manage risk and be extremely conservative in many, many respects. Everything is, you know, checked and double checked and triple checked, and that breeds uh, a degree of caution, um, which. Is incompatible in many ways with the the kind of nimble, the need to be nimble and responsive to the marketplace. So these two things are happening simultaneously and they you know inevitably um, clash with one another. So you find that uh, you just can't move as fast as you know you need to. Um, So yeah, it's a a really tricky tension, but it's interesting um, the work that I've done since leaving there, um, I've had an opportunity to do a lot more reading, uh, you know, the the gift of time is one of the wonderful things that's happened, Uh, you know, time to think and really properly reflect. And um, what I have come to believe is that culture is a very poorly understood uh, concept. Um, so I've come to the conclusion that uh, the best definition of culture that I've been able to establish for myself is that culture really equates to the rules of belonging in a particular group. And what I've observed uh, now over many years um, uh, with with my employment and also with my consulting work, is that humans adopt the behavior that is considered successful in the group that they join so culture almost exists as its own um, distinct organism and people join it and either go native or leave and so it sort of exists independent of who joins it and who leaves it it's a it's a really fascinating phenomenon
2: wow so my next question is around what are the biggest factors preventing cultural change in organization? Now, I will take that as one aspect. What mm-hmm. other factors may prevent cultural change?
0: So, um, humans have evolved In two very distinct ways one is through you know genetic evolution which is glacially slow and the other is through culture which is fast and getting faster and the two are now fundamentally in mismatch so the brain that you and I are walking around with is essentially identical to the brain that our 80 thousand year old ancestors were walking around with they are threat detection, pattern recognition machines that are designed to keep us alive and not at all well designed for the world that we have created for ourselves. So because we are desperately hardwired to belong to groups, when a culture builds up inside an organization and someone joins that organization they will quickly figure out their brain is primed to very quickly figure out what will earn them belonging in that group and once they have adopted that behavior and earned that belonging then it is in their interests to make sure that those rules of belonging do not change because if the rules change then their own belonging will be at risk so this idea that we just don't like change, I think is a very simplistic way of saying our brains are very good at keeping us safe. They believe that to belong is to be safe. So they will resist consciously and unconsciously any attempt to change the rules of belonging. So culture is the rules of belonging. So when you try and change it, people behave as though they are being threatened. So it's, it's a rational response.
2: Yeah. Fascinating that we have that when we We know that change is happening all the time yeah but we still have this innate aspect of our our bodies and our minds that we want to resist change because we want to keep in that safe environment of what we've always known and and what we're always doing yeah very fascinating so before we move into your current role let's talk about your leadership style Mm -hmm. how would your clients describe your leadership
0: I think they would say that I was authoritative, but warm, so empathetic, but I don't let them get away with much. <laughs> so, um, I do tend to challenge them uh, a fair bit, uh, because I think, yeah, being you know living inside your comfort zone feels safe, but in fact, prevents you from trying the very things that are likely to make you more successful. So this illusion of safety that we walk around with is is just that, an illusion. So I, um, I challenge them uh, warmly, <laughs> but directly.
2: So on that, what are your core values that you align to as part of your leadership style?
0: Um, it's a combination of empathy, And high expectations. So, I think people perform best when they know they're fully supported. So, you know, any form of failure or mistake is a beautiful learning opportunity. But at the same time, uh, that learning is expected. So, making the same mistake, you know, three or four times is not okay. Um, So, a combination of, you know, high expectation and high support.
2: So in 2017, you established Robertson Consulting Services. What was your purpose or why behind becoming an entrepreneur?
0: So it was always something that I had planned to do. In fact, I probably put it off way too long, um, which is very often the case when you look back on your life, you just wish you'd done things sooner. Um, It was always an opportunity to help more people Um, across a variety of different industries. So I work across a number of different industries and I particularly enjoy helping uh, people who have either been promoted into their most senior role so far in their career and are um, needing that little bit of additional support to, to lift their level of work and lead as effectively as possible. Whilst taking care of themselves because, you know, overwhelm and burnout are so so much more common today uh, than they were even five or ten years ago. So yeah, an opportunity for for variety, an opportunity to help more people and that glorious chance to have time to think and do all that wonderful research that i would always wanted to do.
2: So can you describe to our listeners what allows Robertson Consulting Services to stand out from the crowd?
0: I think it's a combination of having lived inside large corporates and um, experienced what it's like to be in that position of being, you know, what's the word, smashed maybe, smashed from above and smashed from below. <laughs> you know, every, there's, there's more people than you can possibly um, keep happy and they all want everything from you yesterday. So having lived that, um, gives me a unique opportunity to to have seen the world through the eyes of most of my clients um, but also having worked on the consulting side of the table for much of my career as well I am able to look at their situation from the outside so I get a I've got a, a kind of insider outsider blend uh, which I find really useful in uh, in most of the conversations I have with leaders
2: if you're speaking to a brand new, executive or CEO coming into an organization, what key aspects would you get them to look for with regards the culture in deciding whether it needs to change or just evolve as Mm. it currently sits?
0: Great question. So, um, you know, the old uh, adage, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Um, basically, the the relationship between culture and strategy is the most critical thing of all. A strategy that's written without the culture to execute it is nothing but a piece of paper. A culture exercise that isn't in service of the execution of strategy is just about making people feel good. So I would urge them to look at culture as a commercial um, proposition to look at the intersection between culture and strategy, to understand um, very clearly what their existing culture is. So, what are the prevalent existing rules of belonging in the organisation that they have inherited. Um, If they're coming in as the most senior leader, they have a unique opportunity to shift those rules of belonging in the right direction, but they need to know what that right direction is. So they need to think carefully and deeply about what culture they need to execute their strategy and only then take the steps to move themselves in that direction.
2: Is it better to keep the current staff on board when you're doing a culture shift change or to clean slate?
0: Ah, the big question, do you change the people or do you change the people? Um, so, look, I'm not sure there's a simple answer to that. I think if you are going to keep the same people or you prefer to keep the skills of the people that you have and their, um, uh, you know, organizational knowledge and intellectual property, uh, the only way to do that is to make them feel safe throughout the change. So simple techniques like every time you have to change something, tell them the 10 things that are not changing at the same time so that they can feel a sense you know, that their belonging is not threatened and that they can in fact stay safe and thrive in the new world. Um, if you can't be successful at that, sometimes you do have to make the decision to bring in some new people.
2: So how can a company future-proof itself to ensure that culture supports the strategy?
0: Pay attention. Uh, I mean, culture must change constantly. Well, it does anyway, whether you like it or not. Um, It should be continually nudged to support strategy. So as strategy changes, culture should change and vice versa. They should be Um, endlessly iterating around each other. So um, to the extent that any organization can be future-proofed, that is the key to doing it, I believe, um, to keep an eye on how strategy needs to change and make sure that the two are inextricably linked.
2: Is there a need now, you know, we we see a lot of companies who will do three, five, 10, 30-year strategies. Do we need to see more of the three month or six month strategies? Because that's easier for people to comprehend versus the real big, long detailed strategy for 30 years time.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. It's one of those, it depends situations. Um, Certainly there was a time when you could knock on the door of any strategy division in any large corporate um, and ask for the 10 year plan and you would get one. Today, I think you might struggle. Um, you know, you might get a five-year plan these days, possibly. Uh, you will almost certainly get a three year and everybody seems to have a one year. The time horizon for planning seems to be getting continually shorter, um, unless you're a giant, you know, unless you're BHP or somebody and you' you're, you're um, having to plan out decades in advance. But um, I think I think so long as it is clear to your people, where you're heading and why. The why is probably the most important thing. The how can shift, but the why is the the sort of North star that people will keep their eye on. Um, and and you know the the manner in which you know what's important as we move together, the values that we espouse and not just espouse obviously, but but live in our everyday work. Those are those are absolutely crucial. So for people to know where they're heading and why.
2: You talked about spending a bit of time now working with executives as a coach. Why do you find coaching so rewarding?
0: Do you know, I honestly am finding it even more rewarding than I expected to. I think, um, When you're in role and you're so frantically busy and you have very little time to genuinely reflect, if someone is able to give you a way of thinking about a problem, a new mental model, a framework, just just some hints and tips, and they're practical enough that you can apply them, you can then go away from that session, uh, try them out, and then come back to the next one and reflect on what worked and what didn't. It really can make a fundamental shift. And I've now worked with enough executives and seen that happen over and over again, and I just never cease to get a really genuine thrill. It feels... Um, I almost feel like they're doing me a favor uh, by letting me observe that process. Um, I feel, it makes me feel great to be genuinely in service. Um, So watching those transformations is what it's all about.
2: So if someone was looking for an executive coach, what key things should they be looking for?
0: Mm. Um, They need to feel comfortable, but not too comfortable with that person. Um, they need to find someone that they feel a level of empathy from, but who will, who will challenge them. Uh, a coach is not a friend. <laughs> a coach is a, a person who's there to challenge and support you in equal measure. So I'd be looking for that blend, not too comfortable.
2: So what's next for Fiona Robertson?
0: well i am writing a book about organizational culture which is called the rules of belonging Um, I have a newfound uh, respect for people who write books as a result of that process. Um, I'm also doing uh, more keynote speaking on the subject of culture, which I'm also enjoying thoroughly, and alongside the work with individual executives doing more work with teams around looking at the the team culture, um, particularly if they're working inside a larger whole, um, how do you you know, set a good culture for your team, uh, when you're working inside a larger system. So doing more of that kind of work and very much enjoying that as well.
2: So how do you set a good culture for yourself and ensure that you live an active and healthy lifestyle?
0: Mm. so um, some years ago I was blessed to be introduced to the notion of meditation which at that time was um, still pretty you know woo woo and everyone thought it was a bit weird Um, of course now we all know how incredibly uh, valuable and impactful it is Um, in more recent years I have embraced uh, exercise in a way that I never did in my early life. Um, so take myself off to the gym and do yoga, um, something that I thoroughly enjoy doing with my young adult daughter. Uh, so yes, I'm I'm more and more mindful of how important it is to keep you know healthy and and in in mind and body uh, to be able to do the kind of work I do.
2: Now, I'm sure in the work that you do now, you realize how important it is to be in a peak performance state for your client on a regular basis versus when you're just in a routine job, you know, you sort of go through the motions every day to a certain extent, obviously doing exciting stuff. But what habits or routines now allow you to ensure that when you turn up, you actually really show up in that peak performance state?
0: Yeah, that's the thing about being a coach or uh, an advisor of any kind. You've got to be on your A game every minute uh, when you're supporting a client. Um, I take sleep a lot more seriously than I used to. Um, I absolutely religiously meditate on the morning of um, a client engagement. Um, I take notice of what I eat Um I'm not great with that, but I'm uh, better, you know, in the day before a client engagement than I am at, on other days. Um, and yeah, just maintain the, the, uh, exercise schedule.
2: We all know smart people have great answers, but the best people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time?
0: It was actually quite recently. Um, I tried weightlifting for the first time, and I'm I'm kind of chuckling about that because um, if your listeners could see me, they would know that I am not a weightlifter. Let's just put it that way. Um, and so there I was in the gym, you know, lying back on one of those padded bench and benches with a, a bit of metal above my nose, thinking, "Wow, I hope I don't drop this on myself or others." Um, and I found it remarkably uh, interesting. Um, I think the It appeals to my sense of efficiency that I can do, you know, 30 reps of lifting a thing. It'll take me exactly the same amount of time and I can very slowly add weight to it and see how I'm going. Um, So it's something I never thought in a million years that I would do. But now I love it.
2: Brilliant. What is the one question that you would love to solve?
0: Um, I'm obsessed with this idea of belonging and how fundamental a human need it is. And so I find it incredibly frustrating when I see the kind of us and them thinking that the human race seems to be so adept at. And uh, at the moment, it seems to be so prevalent in the world. Um, my personal view is there there is no them. There is only us. And I would dearly love... You know, the world to, to recognize um, how ridiculous it is to put these artificial barriers between us. Um, I have no idea uh, how to solve that particular problem except to just chip away at it every day in the work that I do. But um, if I could solve that, I think the world would be a much better place.
2: At Active CEO, we are passionate about making a difference in people's lives. So we like to leave our listeners with a call to action. What is one piece of advice or call to action you would like to share with our listeners?
0: I think, um, you have to notice before you can choose. So if you want to change something in your life, you have to notice what you're doing now before you can decide to make something different. If you just, live in this world of constant activity and never take a moment to pause and reflect, you simply are not going to notice what's even happening now and therefore you won't be able to choose to change it.
2: Fiona, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today and I'm sure our listeners would love to learn a lot more about what you do and what would be the best way for people to connect with you.
0: So you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Fiona Robertson. Also my website is fionarobertson.com. People can sign up there if they're interested in getting uh, my newsletter email um, that goes out every three weeks or so. Uh, That's probably the simplest way.
2: Brilliant. Fiona, I've loved speaking with you today. I enjoyed the fascinating insight of having this little bit of rebellion to you when you're at school, but being the quiet observer that kind of look back and trying to figure out why things happened and why people worked in the way they did to seeing you start to grasp that you wanted to be involved with people and, you know, starting off in communication and, getting those real insights of living overseas and seeing people through a different lens. And I think that's so, so important. We see so many people that stay in their own environment, their own town, their their home country, and their perspective on the world is is sheltered a lot from what really happens out there. And so for you to get the opportunity um, in your earlier years to go through that, working in different countries, different people, different backgrounds that diversity I think is really set you up for the work that you're able to do in cultural change and and now as a coach and, and person that's speaking as an expert in the area of culture I really liked it when you talked about the gift of time and making sure that you understand that you need time for things to happen but really grasp that that concept there and ensuring that people are patient You know, too often we're quick to react. But when it comes to culture, we do have to be patient because we do need to understand the dynamics of what's going on. You talked about tribes. Now, a company is generally not one tribe. There are multiple tribes going on. And it's like living in Australia with eight states and a federal government and everyone having their own ways of thinking and things that they do. So I really like that as well. And so thank you very much for the work that you do for organizations and for people to help them change and to change relatively smoothly in this chaotic world of consistent change. Thank you very much for your time today. And we look forward to seeing the incredible work continuing in the future.
0: It's been a great pleasure, Craig. Thanks so much.
2: On this week's active CEO performance tip, we're talking about own your own freedom. Are you content with how you are living your life or the way you might be living someone else's life? It's important that you find the passion, happiness and direction in your life because what fuels that fire in your belly? You know, what are you willing to sacrifice to fulfill your passion? What allows you to feel content and fall asleep at ease. Your know, what is your purpose and direction in life? These are really important questions that you need to understand because it's important that you own your own freedom. So here are three questions to ask yourself each day. Number one: What makes you Come alive. Number two, what are your innate strengths? And number three, will you add greatest value? Once you understand those three questions, then you can own your own freedom. Thank you for listening to a beautiful conversation with Fiona Robertson. Culture is the rules of belonging on the Active CEO podcast. What is your unique reality in the past, now and in the future? You're in control of your own narrative. You get to write the story on your life. There are so many people who are living someone else's life or reality, whether that be on social media. Everyone seems to have an incredibly amazing or absolutely terrible life. Most of the time it's an authentic life. What is your uniqueness, your unique self? Because we all have these amazing stories things we can learn from teach other people and improve the way we react or behave in similar situations in the future you own your own stories no one else has lived them they are unique to you so take full grasp and ownership of those unique stories So, a question for you what is your unique Reality in the past? What story are you living now? And what is your future vision? Three questions I would like you to ask yourself today. Number one Am I living my own life or someone else's life? Number two Am I content with the past? or is it holding you back? And number three, how can I own the narrative, the story in my head and be in control of my future story? Do you need some support in clarifying your why and purpose in life so you can live your own story? At Active CEO Coaching, we've developed Own8, which are eight ways to own your own influence. For more details, please contact me at craig at energy to or click on the contact page of www.craigjohns.com.au I'm Craig Johns. This is the Active CEO podcast where ordinary mm. don't belong
1: join the active ceo movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com that's n r g number two perform.com share this podcast on linkedin and be sure to tag in nrg to perform leave a review on itunes drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the nrg to perform facebook and instagram pages be sure to check out the next active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.